Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. This is our first show in many weeks now outside of the bubble. First of all, Kevin, you made it through. Are you going bonkers, Kevin? It must have been so tough. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was It was a long time. I was in the bubble for 41 days total. So, yeah, it was not easy at all. Like the, And we had a four and a half days where we were complete isolation in the room because of the positive COVID cases. So you couldn't leave the room for any reason at all other than to get tested. So you got your two minutes to walk out the door and get tested once a day. Other than that, you were in the room by yourself for four and a half straight days. It was sure nice to get out of there and get home. And, and now I'm, uh, yeah, talking to you from, from my house again, which is uh, far more comfortable than being in a hotel room 40 days. <laughs> Warren, they pulled this off. Did you think it would happen, Warren? They had some trouble in the middle of it. Uh, they got to the starting line and they ended up finishing uh, with the Women's Worlds. Pretty cool, Warren, that it all got done. Yeah, without question. And I first would like to say congratulations to everyone who was part of that whole arrangement and, and did make it happen. And I, I know there were some anxious moments right from the beginning until the last rock probably stopped. Uh, but what could or would happen? But they were able to make it uh, make it all successful. And again, congratulations to everybody. And I know from talking to people besides Kevin that were in there for a period of time, it was a very stressful situation. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that kind of restriction. And some of those people were in there for weeks, weeks on end. And I think one ice maker, John Wall, I think he was in there from start to finish, which is just amazing. So again, great that it was able to be done. Hope it never has to be done again, but cross our fingers. I mean, at least if we are still facing some issues here by the time we hit the next curling season, we now have gone through this once and now know how to do it. Lots to talk about, including that and many, many more things. Let's roll one out again, boys. Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right here, Last guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out. As a champion, cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Uh, so, fellas, on the show today, uh, we're going to talk about lots of things, uh, what's happening around the curling world. Uh, the women's world ended, of course, in Calgary uh, this past week, uh, which uh, concluded seven events through almost three months of events inside the bubble. Did you keep track, Kevin, of how many broadcasts you did? I didn't know you were going to ask me that one, Jimmy. Uh, how many games? Boy, 19 in the first event, and then 11 and 12. So 19, 11, 12. And then the Women's Worlds, I was supposed to do uh, 19 games, but of course we had four and a half days of quarantine and isolation. 50, 55 games, 
something like that over the 41 days. But you know what? I think it was really important that the, the bubble happened. And the reason I say that, I, I think it's really important that TV happened for curling, but also the social media around the world. I think it's just really important that it, it's in the public eye. To take a year and a half off would have been really tough on our sport. And I think that uh, with the growth of curling around the world being one of the fastest growing sports in the world, summer or winter today, to have a year and a half where uh, we're not on air at all would have set curling back a little bit. So this, the job that was done to get curling in the bubble for all those weeks, all those months, starting in the middle of February, was really outstanding. Uh, so Warren, let's get your, your feedback on the Women's Worlds. Well, it was a very interesting event. I think uh, 14 teams at both the Men's and Women's Worlds, I, I do believe is simply too many. I understand why it had to be that case this year, but I think even prior to that, it was 13 teams. And I still think it's too many. It's just too exhausting. It's too long. I think when the final six teams were qualified, however, it was probably the right ones. Maybe one exception could have uh, existed, but I think that the, the right six teams made it into the top. I thought Sweden, certainly when they played Canada during the uh, playoffs in that first game, they were so outstanding. I thought, wow, no one's going to be able to touch this team if they keep playing like that. All four of them shot in the low 90s against Kerry Einerson. But then they went out the next game, and they just weren't quite as sharp. And they played one really bad end where I thought that they just played far too aggressive and ended up giving up, I believe, four. And in the bronze medal game, uh, they played against the U.S. in a similar way and ended up giving up five. So that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, I think the Terenzoni team from Switzerland were consistent from start to finish. They were the class of the field in the end. Their final record was 15-1. and one. And uh, you certainly can't deny them that uh, victory with, with that kind of a, a record. Again, I think qualifying six teams is probably too many. Uh, I look at one situation where Switzerland played the United States in the semifinals. At that point in time, the Swiss had one loss, the United States had six. So they were going against a team with five losses more than they had in a sudden death situation. And I'm not sure that should ever be able to happen. The fact that you've played there for an entire week to get the record you have and then you have to put it on the line with a team that's won only or lost five more games than you have. So I think, again, going forward, that to some degree needs to be looked at. Overall, I thought it was a very entertaining week. I thought it was very well done in the bubble. Considering the problem that they had with the COVID scare at the start of the week, they recovered from that very well. It impacted the broadcast, but everybody got through it. And I think in the end, the whole thing was a great success. Well, yeah, the importance of the bubble with the Olympic qualification. Um, I, you know, everybody's on pins and needles, of course, right from the start with the Scotties all the way through to the women's worlds. And, and it was just so important to have all these events take place for Olympic qualification. Uh, otherwise, how would you decide? You've got the mixed doubles, of course, coming up next in Scotland. But as far as women's curling and men's curling, Somehow you have to decide what nations are going to go to the next Olympic Games. And, and, and the Olympics are, aren't far, far away now. So it was cr absolutely crucial for our sport that all of these events take place in the bubble. And thank goodness they went. One thing that I sure question, I'd like to hear Warren's comments on this one, is uh, I felt really bad for the teams that were, say, 7-6 and six or 8-5, and five, whatever it might have been in whichever worlds. And they were eliminated from going to the Olympic Games. Remember, this world was all about qualification for the Olympics. Top six, the ones that made the playoffs. Now, if there was a tie at sixth place, there are no tiebreakers. So those teams are gone without a game. They all because of draw the button and not because of the event, the world. I don't I actually don't mind the idea of no tiebreakers 
when it comes to worlds, but but you're actually talking about teams going to the Olympics, the world's biggest stage, period. And you've got teams that are three or four teams, all at seven and six. One team gets in because they draw the button, three are eliminated. I just don't think that's fair. Uh, boy, that's devastating. That's a massive loss to not get in the playoffs of the world. It's not that as big of a deal. But to not get to go to the Olympic Games in Beijing 2022, wow. Yeah, I agree with you that the process that they're using now to break ties under normal circumstances, I think is the way to go. Uh, Because having run events many years, I know what a problem that whole tiebreaker scenario does create. But you're right, I think in the year of the Olympics that uh, a team gets eliminated or a country is eliminated from being able to go to the Olympics by the draw of the button is maybe a little harsh. And maybe that's something that needs to be considered by the WCF going forward in that one situation that they need to do something besides simply draw to the button to break the tie. Uh, Kevin, uh, it deserves an explanation about what, when you say the draw to the button, lots of people don't understand what that is when they look back with no tiebreakers. Explain to everyone, Kevin, uh, how the draw to the button works through the whole event. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, Jimmy. Um, so when you start a curling game at the, at the Worlds, the first practice, so a team, one of the teams goes out for first practice and you have to have a counterclockwise and a clockwise throw. It is measured from the button hole. And if you cover, say the rock covers the button completely, they actually use triangulation for the distance from the dead center of the stone to the button. So every rock is measured as a distance. Now during the whole time, so it's a 13 game round robin. So your team, every team will have 26 draws. They do discard the worst two because of, you know, picks outside influences. So they get, they allow your worst two draws to be gone. And then your team would be given out of the remaining 24, a distance per draw. And that distance means a ton in the world championships because there's no tiebreakers. So in the case of Switzerland, I think their distance from the, the button after 20, the 26 minus the two worst divide by 24, their distance was around 16 centimeters. So they, Switzerland was number one by a mile. But for all the young kids coming up, that, that's the key these days is you need to be able to to win this draw the button contest that's how you get hammer in each individual game but also it could keep you in the event in the case of a tie break situation i don't like it warren sounds to me it's the equivalent of having a you know seven or eight guys tied in a game of golf and they go okay we're going to go to the practice screen and the guy who puts it closer to the hole wins i know the challenge of tiebreakers from running events and uh there's no simple solution to this because when you're running events, you have to allocate this time for tiebreakers. It is a huge expense uh, to the event, potentially, if you end up with nothing, which often happens, or if you end up with multiples. So I get it, and there needs to be a way of probably breaking those ties other than having to go in those games, except maybe when it comes down to Olympic qualification. Uh, is this the best way? It is for now. Maybe there's other ways of looking at it, but I mean, other sports do similar things with regard to breaking ties at the end of season. Some do have games, others don't. And uh, it's been a topic of discussion for a long time, and we're going to talk about it here in a bit. But um, it is what it is, and uh, I guess until we find a better way of dealing with it, that's the way it's going to be. Uh, Kevin, Carrie Anderson, uh, hell of a run. You know, hell of a run that she's been on. Uh, Of course, incredible success that she's had. You did make a note with me, Kev, we were talking last night that Taranzoni's team, who ended up winning the Worlds, 
very interesting stat was they ended up being the best at all positions. Is Canada in tougher these days, Kevin? Is it getting harder and harder and harder for for us to win these events? Uh, is there more challenges ahead? I hope so. Um, what that means is, I, I, nothing against Canada, of course, because I've represented Canada lots and loved it. It just means our sport's growing worldwide. That means that other countries are getting really, really good at curling, and that's not a negative. In my world, I think it's terrific that uh, Canada has to pull up their socks to to compete at the world level uh, or to continue to compete at the world level. I think that's absolutely wonderful. There are some some things that we should probably think about. Fatigue of the athlete. Um, we've traditionally always had the Canadian champion in end of February, if it's the Scotties, or sometime middle of March for the men. And then they have to play right away again. And it could be as far away as Europe or, or, or something, you know, a long, long flight and, and organizing family and all of that. And I think that's something that needs to be looked at. Europeans is traditionally sometime in December. And a lot of times that will decide the representative from various countries or, or the country themselves chooses. But the teams come into the world championships fresh. Our champions tend to be, you know, run through the ringer with our national championships being a ridiculous amount of games. I like what it takes to win the Briar now is crazy amount of games to win the championship. So the sweepers are dead, tired. Everybody's tired. Brendan Botcher or Kerry Anderson, they're mentally just drained. And now two weeks later, like soon, oh, you better be sharp. We got a Worlds. Well, why wouldn't we claim our champion in the middle of December or even right after the Christmas holidays, sometime early January, and, and give them more of a chance? Like, I, I just don't understand why why we wouldn't have the Canada Cup winner go to the world championships. I know this is going to get some, some talk going and stuff, but it just, let's talk about this in real life. Forget about all the tradition and all the, let's just think about how do we make our Canadian teams have a better chance at success? Well, I, I love the idea of a proper World Cup where you've got no more than three teams from any particular country, including Canada, and you play these World Cup events, say four of them. So you have a World Cup in November, you could have a World Cup in January. You could have a World Cup in February. And then the final World Cup championship in March. Okay. Now you got your Grand Slam events, which are absolutely huge. And you, we heard Bruce Mowat, you talk, Nick Adeen, you talk, all these great curling teams, Anna Hasselborg, who live and die by the slams. Okay. So we'll have a slam in October, one in November. If the Canada Cup is going to be in December, it would be a long event. Let's not have a slam there. We'll have one in January. And then you have uh, it in probably March and a couple in April, and that finishes up the, the Grand Slam events. You would still have your world championships in end of March, early April, no problem. But you've, you've, you've named your team way earlier, and those teams can then use the World Cups and the Slams to get ready. You don't have to play everyone. You now know months in advance your Team Canada. Okay, what's the schedule that we need to use to so we're absolutely the best chance of us being not tired, but prepared because it's, it's such a situation where teams practice and play like crazy till be it February in the ladies or March in the men's in Canada. And, oh, no, we won. Now we've got two weeks. I haven't been home. I haven't, I haven't been able to work because I've been on the road for two straight months. How am I going to possibly get my work done and get ready to go to a world championship over in Norway? And it's just too difficult. And that's where I think with COVID happening, this is a good time for a reset in Canada. Let's set the schedule up 
so that we give our teams the best possible chance to do well at the Worlds. And the way we do it today isn't the best chance to win. Well, yes, a very in-depth question. And I know to go down this path, we're going to ruffle some feathers, but I've been saying it for a long time. We just need to look back at what's happened over the last probably 10, 15 years. It's been a slow slide. Uh, We can go back to the Olympics in 2018. We didn't medal either men or women. And this year, for the first time, neither men's or women's uh, side managed to qualify for for the final four. Um, it's no one's fault in particular, and it certainly isn't uh, anything to be pointed at the teams. But I think the one thing that Curling Canada should do, they need to do a thorough review, an honest review of what's going on and, and what might be able to be the best route to take for the future. And they, they need to consult and bring in a number of people in those discussions, not to keep it as a little in-house uh, operation. Because I agree with Kevin, totally, it's got to go down a different route. And I think maybe the... As he suggests, maybe the quickest solution is to begin to take the winner of the Canada Cup to the Worlds. This now eliminates the need for these teams to be within the same province, which I think is key. The provincial boundaries have to be removed when it comes to determining who's going to represent Canada at the Worlds and who's going to represent Canada at the Olympics. It is that way for the Olympics, but because of the way these teams are currently structured for the World Championships, they are basically following the same rules as the Briar because they have to, or, or else they have to have a different team. So I think that's the first thing. Take Get rid of the provincial restrictions. Take the winner of the Canada Cup. That's going to be the team that represents Canada at the World. As Kevin says, it could be determined in December as it is now. There's a lag period now to get ready for that World Championship, and it's not such a rush, which it currently is. I think the Briar, uh, it seems to be, Without question, an event that everybody feels is necessary along with the Scotties in its current format, and uh, I'm okay with that, but let's take it back then to what it was uh, a few years ago. 14 teams, one from each province territory, no boundary jumping, all four players have to live within that territory they're playing out of, no exceptions, and uh, you can run that off in, in the same manner that you do now if, if that's the desire. And even take the winner of that event and put them into the, the Canada Cup as giving a tie between the two. But I think that's the, the short-term solution that could easily be implemented to start in 2023. Beyond that, I think there's lots of other things that need to happen that need to be looked at to become more uh, in tune to bringing up the younger players, maybe introduce a whole new way of doing business with the 17, 18, 19-year-olds. But I think something needs to be taken in a different direction because the current system is strained. It was never designed to be doing what it's doing. An interprovincial competition is not how you determine who's going to represent the country in anything. Kevin, do you know something, or Warren, do you guys know something that the rest of us don't? What Russia is doing to be so good? Should we borrow some idea from them? Well, on the men's side, it was just a, um, just a really, really good young curler, Glukov, who, who just surprised everybody. And, and uh, I said on air that with Mike Harris, when we were calling the games, I said, well, I don't know this young man. I, I, I don't know anything about him. I don't know anything. Anyway, I didn't check his Instagram feed. His Instagram is actually a picture of him and I with our arms around each other out on the street <laughs> in Vegas. <laughs> so, Sergey, Sergey, I apologize. We took a picture together at the Men's Worlds in 2018, and, and uh, he was there to watch, and I was there for the uh, for the uh, Hall of Fame induction, the World Curling Hall of Fame induction, and we ended up meeting, and uh, I had no idea that I was meeting such a, 
a great young phenom curler. I had no idea. So, Sergey, I apologize. I did not know. But so, in the case of men's curling in, in Russia, uh, all, you know, obviously they've just found a phenom, a, a tremendous young athlete and great. And they're going to be really good now for quite a few years, but they don't have the depth in men's curling. Women's curling, though, on the other hand, they've been good for a long time, Jimmy. They've been uh, with Anna Sidrova and Moiseva and now with Alina Kovaleva. You've got really good teams back to back to back. And and uh, Kovaleva plays in a lot of the Grand Slams. We we see them all the time. And um, th- for them to be that good, they are that good. <laughs> and that wasn't a surprise um, for anybody. Uh, I certainly picked them to be in the final six. There was no, no, no big surprise, but I would like to talk just two seconds here. If you go in the women's curling, because we just got done the women's worlds. I only looked up the women's, but at the Olympics, since Sandra Schmirler and company won in 98, you've got Rona Martin winning in 02, Annette Norberg winning in 06 and 2010, Jennifer Jones, of course, winning and going undefeated in 2014, and then Anna Hasselborg in 2018. So you've got Sandra Schmirler winning and Jones. You've got two Canadian champions so far in the women's Olympics. Over the last 10 years at the women's worlds, you've got Miriam Ott in 2012, Eve Muirhead, 2013, Binya Felcher, Alina Petz, and then Binya Felcher in 14, 15, and 16. Rachel Holman wins in 17, Jennifer Jones in 18. And then in 19, you've got Terenzoni with Pets, and in 2021, there wasn't a 2020, of course. 2021, you've got Terenzoni with Pets. So Canada's only won two worlds and two Olympics in, in all the years of women's Olympics for curling, and then only two in the last 10 years, women's curling. I don't think I'm panicking without some, I guess maybe I'm not panicking, that might be a little extreme, but I'm worried. I think our process, uh, we need to look hard at our coaching system and we need to look hard at our process. Obviously, it's not working really well. What do you say, Warren? Yeah, I agree. A, a full review of everything that's taking place, I think, has to, has to happen. And I think it needs to involve a lot of people from a lot of different angles that are associated with the sport. Very good, boys. You can email us, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Curling Inside. And we're also on Instagram at Inside Curling Podcast. And our Facebook at Inside Curling, and we've got a you know a huge following and great involvement from all the listeners of the show. Uh, it, it just keeps building and building and building. And one of the things they brought up, Warren, that you wanted to talk about is an interesting point about sweeping behind the T-line. And the question put forward was, should sweeping of an opponent's stone behind the T-line possibly be discontinued? Let's start with you, Warren. Interesting question, and this is something that's been out there forever, going back to many, many years. It's always been a point of conflict. Back in my days, there were body checks that took place at the T-line between the two skips or thirds uh, trying to get to the rock, and it's always been a, a, a little bit of a, an agitation point uh, that could exist with uh, the teams. Good question that was put forward. Uh, I'm not sure why this rule ever existed. I can't seem to find any history of it, but it is the only time in curling when you can do anything to potentially impede what your opponent is doing by able to sweep their rock behind a T-line. And this uh, Facebook fan suggested, and it's been suggested many times, maybe we reached a point in time where when you are the playing side, you are in control of the ice, and you can sweep from hack to hack, I guess, if you desire, and the other team isn't allowed to sweep at all at any point in time. Uh, Maybe that would be a, a good thing to consider. I don't know. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, what an interesting thought, because over the years, 
Yeah, you can think back to uh, some real good battles that used to happen at the tee line because one guy, you'd accuse him of warming the ice up, like sweeping too early before the rock gets to the tee line. And so the other team would put their broom in there and stop the person and, of course, would leave some debris there. And, of course, then you get in a big fight. And, and uh, yeah, there's there's some good situations. Lauren Barker, a real good <laughs> friend of mine and a really good curler from the Alberta area, is a, uh, a junior champion with Darren Fish back in the day. And anyway, real good sweeper. And uh, in the Super League in, in uh, at the Otwell Curling Club, if I remember it right, and I'm sure he'll tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, him and Donnie B got into a bit and Lauren whacked him with a broom. <laughs> with <his broom. laughs> so, you know what? It uh, It's funny how it goes, but you're right. Is it a time where, because really, you know, you sweep a rock. How far is a skip going to carry that rock for six feet? A couple inches, maybe. So if nobody swept, I'm not sure. I'm kind of torn on that one because you are actually able to affect if you're a better sweeper than the, the other skip, you do have an advantage because you're better at something. So to take that little advantage, I know it's not a very big advantage, but it's a little advantage away. Hmm. Interesting. You know what? I think you're onto something there, Warren. Maybe body checking should be allowed. You want people to get more interested in it. That would that would be good. You could slew foot a guy. You know? Well, that's what one point in time I said. You want to make curling a little more interesting. Make that area between the hog lines an open territory. So, when there's a rock in there, your two players, uh, their job is to try and stop the other two players from interfering with the stone. <laughs> but a whole new dimension to the sport. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Coming from a football coach. <laughs> I've seen Warren and how he's in good shape. I don't want to. I don't want to try and body check him. Okay, you're going to end up flat in your face. Warren, what's happening on our big Facebook group? Things have been really active there this last week, and we're now up to almost 5,300 members. We've been adding uh, almost 100 every two, three days during these events. So, we thank everybody who's joined our group. Uh, come in and express your thoughts and views. Uh, it gets interesting at times, but it's been really active and lots of good discussion and uh, lots of good opinions. So. Please join our group if you're not already in it. Okay, it's time to bring on our guest, the reigning world champion, the new world champion, Sylvana Terenzo. Okay. Kevin, Martin, you haven't disappointed us again in our long string of high-performance curlers. We want to congratulate and welcome into our room this morning your reigning world champion, women's world champion, Silvana Terenzoni. How are you, Silvana? I'm very good. Thank you. Good to be here. Of course, winning the Worlds, this is your second time uh, in a row. You won, you won the last time as well. And I'm wondering, getting out of the bubble felt as good as winning the world championship. How long were you in the bubble and uh, and when did you get back to Switzerland? Well, it was not quite the same feeling, but it was good to leave the bubble after five weeks. We have been there for five weeks, but um, you know, not everything was bad. Um, ordering food to the bed and then just put all the dishes in front of the door. That's <laughs> something I'm gonna miss here in Switzerland. So. We were talking just before we started um, that when you flew back, you, you left Calgary, you flew to Amsterdam and then on, and on to Zurich. And I was asking if a plane was empty and you said it pretty much was, except for all the curlers that were in the back of the plane, uh, you must have had a pretty good party, a little pretty good celebration. How was the 
flight over to Zurich with all the curlers. <laughs> and who was there? Who was with you? Yeah, I think that was probably the only um, plane that was leaving Calgary that time. So there was uh, Scotland, Sweden, Russia, and I think even um, Kerry Anderson was on this uh, plane. So, but yeah, the party, um, no, we had no party on the plane. I think they didn't want us to party. <laughs> <laughs> Do you social distance on the plane? Yes, lucky us. Everybody had his own row, so that was good. Walk us through how you got interested in curling, uh, when it all started for you, and uh, who, who influenced you, and to now being a world champion. Well, I started at 10, so uh, not too early, actually. I think kids um, these days start even earlier. But my, my dad was already a curler and quite successful as a senior. But yeah, that's how I got into it. And um, so I remember, you know, like I loved curling from the first day on. And I remember I had a notebook written all my my goals down there. And they were written, uh, I want to be a junior world champion. I want to be an elite world champion. And I want to be a senior world champion. And I can cross out two, two of those goals now. I still have that notebook. So. Very good. Talk to me about the bubble and how you guys did it. We've, well, we've had a number of conversations with, with other guests. How did your team manage it? How did you uh, deal with having to be locked down in the hotel and, and compete at the same time? Well, hopefully it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Um, but, you know, success and uh, playing well certainly helps um, to keep the team spirit alive. But um, if you are forced to spend five weeks locked up in a hotel, you, you want to do it with teammates like I had. You know, like <laughs> they were all amazing. They were fun to be with. And we had a lot of laughs and we were playing games. And it was not a bad experience at all for us. Things people maybe didn't know about you. And when we, we were lining up this interview, Kevin was telling me yesterday, well, you had to cancel a golf game. Uh, <laughs> so are you a big golfer? Do you golf a lot? Are you a serious golfer? No, I just started. I started last year. Oh, okay. I started actually when there was a lockdown. So I, I learned it by myself with YouTube tutorials in, in the living room. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Pierre Charette helped me a little bit too as a golf pro. He, he was uh, giving me some online lessons. So, uh, and, now, and now I got, you know, I got, um, I got hooked up. So I can, I, I, love, I, I love it. And after five weeks in a hotel room, I couldn't wait to, to golf again and um, now I, I cancelled that golf but that's okay. Why did you take up golf? Well I always wanted to learn it because I think it's a fantastic sport but I never had the time really and um, yeah the pandemic kind of helped me to start finally. And also you're a big baseball fan am I understanding that right? Yes, that's true. Even though I'm not following the teams that closely anymore, I felt like watching um, three hours of uh, baseball every day is a little bit a waste of time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm limiting um, the time there a little bit. So yeah, but I, I usually check the results. Very good. Kevin? Well, yeah, Sylvana. Well, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to come on our show and, and a huge congratulations again, back to back champs, but back to ball because you and I had planned. Now, this is going back. I don't know how many years, maybe 15 years, maybe more. I was supposed to bring ball gloves and a softball to a curling event and we were going to, uh, 
play catch, but I haven't done that yet. So I still owe you on that one. So we'll, we'll get that one done one of these days. I did not forget that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I will remember. We will get that done. There's so much I want to ask you. You guys were outstanding, of course, as a whole team at the Worlds. So I'd like to maybe take a step back, and that's towards maybe your training, because you were the class of the field by a mile. So I'd just like to maybe ask about your training facility. I have heard that when you guys practice, the ice at your home rink, each sheet is set up with a different amount of curl so that you're ready for no matter what the ice conditions are, uh, you're prepared. Is that is there truth in that? Uh, yeah, well, we have a national training center, and in this pandemic, only the the elite teams were allowed to practice there, and this really helped. Um, the ice conditions were way better than, than they usually are, and um, the ice maker could really make sure that um, the ice is is as we wanted it. So he, he really was experimenting with some uh, different whatever he had to do. So we had like your know, sheets where it was curling a lot more than other sheets. Right. And then uh, as far as the team practice, because you live in Zurich, right? Right. And uh, uh, Alina's in Interlochen. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and you practice, I, I, I want to make sure I get the pronunciation of the city, right? Is it Beal? Yeah, that's true. So you, I was in there. I was actually at the Beal Curling Club. Um, I did some schools back in the early 1990s in Beal. But it's about an hour and a half from Zurich and about an hour and a half from Interlochen, I think. It's a long ways to come to practice. So how often can you get together as a team and practice? Because that's very far. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a totally new facility. So it's not the one you know. Like okay, it's, yeah. it's the National Training Center now. And uh, yeah, usually we practice only like once a week together there. But now um, that's what was basically the only one that was still open. So we actually trained like almost every day there. And then, but we, we stayed overnight actually. So I was sleeping there for four <laughs> nights and <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's that they had like, uh, we could sleep there for free. So, um, wow. so I was spending a lot, a lot of time there. Yeah. This. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure glad I asked. I had no idea about that. I just knew it was quite a ways for you. And before I let Warren in, I know Warren's got lots to ask too. Alina Pets, of course, fantastic curler, but was always really good at draws, but needed to get better at, at hitting her hitting game. And in my opinion, and in uh, Esther was always a really good hitter, but not that good at drawing. But at this world championship, Alina hit at 85% and she drew at 85%. Same. Esther drew at 89% for the whole event and hit at 85%. Like that's an incredible improvement uh, in a person's game. Did you and your coaches um, really zero in on on those specific assets of curling for Esther and Alina? We did, yeah. So, and it shows that practice actually helps, yeah. I always believe that, you know, people used to say, if you want to be a great curler, you have to draw. And I always had the other opinion. I was always thinking, like, if you can, if you're a great hitter, you're going to win a lot of games. And um, we, we had meetings talking about that. And uh, I think she she agreed and was working a lot on, on the hits. And now she actually says she prefers to hit, you know, if she has the choice, she prefers to hit. And um, now to know that she's equally good, that just uh, makes the whole team strong. I agree. It makes it really strong. And for the competition, for the teams that you play against, it's so difficult. Now, 
you know, it used to be, at least when I was watching and commentating you guys, you know, if you could make Alina hit, you had a chance. If you made her draw, she would just draw the button. But a hit, <laughs> you might miss, uh, but not anymore. So that was very impressive, and I'm very impressed with the improvement uh, across your, your whole team. Warren, go ahead. Yes, a question about women's curling in Switzerland. I'm looking at the world records, and five out of the last nine years, a Swiss women's team has won the world women's championship, which is absolutely outstanding. Tell me about women's curling in Switzerland. Why has Switzerland been able to become so dominant at the world level? Uh, it's a difficult question. I, I really believe it's the player itself. It's not the association that it's much better or like the program or so. I, I really believe it's the, the players itself that are so committed. And to know that you have other strong teams in Switzerland that just makes you as, as a team, um, you know, in order to beat them, you have to you have to practice like crazy. And I think that really helps to be prepared for all the other nations. So I see a name, Alina Stern, as a team that you've played a few times with some good games the last couple of years. I think she's beat you a couple of times. So she's obviously the one coming up behind you. How many other top women players are there right now in Switzerland besides your team and hers? And uh, how, how is the whole development thing happening at that level that uh, we're able to get all these good players? Well, there is another very young team coming up, um, Team Vichonke, for young, very committed players and um <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm. They're going to be so strong. I'm not sure if I'm still going to be around if if they are going to be on top level, but they're going to be there. And then um, we have another few teams that that can make it, but you don't really know. You know, it's a lot of commitment, and um, they have to sacrifice a lot, and you never know if they can do it. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm quite confident that Switzerland can win also in the future. So how do you determine your national champions? We know a number of countries. We talked to Bruce Moda a couple of weeks ago as to how things are done in Scotland these days. We know how things are done in Sweden. How do you determine who's going to represent uh, Switzerland at the World Championship? And I think, as you mentioned to us before the show started, by qualifying for the Olympics out of Calgary, your team will now represent Switzerland in the Olympics. So that's already been determined. So how do you determine your national champions and who's going to go forward? You have to become Swiss champion um, to make it to the world. So the Swiss champion is qualified um, for the world championships if you had if you are top twenty in the world. If you are not top twenty and you are a Swiss champion, then it's the Swiss association who decides if you really can go. But in the past, it was always the Swiss champion. For the Olympic Games, it's a little different. There is like a different process, so you have to be successful throughout three years. It's a point system, and because we uh, already won uh, a bronze medal at the Europeans, we only needed to finish sixth at this World Championships to make it as a team to the Olympics. Okay, so when you run the Swiss Championships, how many teams are in that uh, in that playoff, and how are they determined? This year was special again; like only four teams were allowed, but um, in the past it was it's between eight and ten teams. When it comes time to select uh, the Olympic team. Uh, you've explained to us how, how they do that. If you didn't place in the top six, uh, you had mentioned the association would pick a team based on these points that you have. Uh, in Canada, you know, players are allowed to bounce around to different teams, as you would know. 
Are you able to do that as well? Or do you have to keep the same team together over those two or three years uh, between each Olympics? For as I remember, you're allowed to switch one player to not lose all those points. But, you know, we don't have that many uh, players like you have. So it's very difficult to, to exchange a player who is on the same level like we are. So usually teams in Switzerland stay together much longer than uh, maybe in, in Canada. And um, it might also be an advantage, actually. Yeah. What are the rest of the players doing? How do they spend their time? Um, um, is curling now um, full time for you? And is it the same case with the other players? Or, or how do they spend their time when they're not curling? the rest of your team? I'm a full-time curler. I decided to quit my job like um, just shortly before the pandemic. So the timing was not great, but just because the experience I made like the last Olympics, it was, I was working until to the last day, basically before we left. And that just, that was just not a very good preparation. And um, when I decided I want to keep playing and want to try to go to the Olympics one more time, I said I want to do it right, and I just think on this level you cannot work, uh, not even part time. At least not as a skip. You have so many commitments next to practice, and so that's just it's, uh, it's, it's not going to be enough anymore. And and I want to give me the best chance to win a medal this time, and that's what I decided to do. So I was quitting my job and and tried to get through <laughs> through without too much money. And how about the other players on your team? Alina is working, I think, one day a week. And um, Melanie is like um, self-employed as a physiotherapist. And Esther is the only one who is actually, you know, she's still working like uh, part-time. I think she works 40%. Ask you a question about how your team is structured and uh, kind of a unique situation. The fact that you skip and throw third stones and Alina throws the, the fourth rocks. Not that common. Notice uh, your men's team now that represents Switzerland is structured the same way. We've had some teams in Canada do that over time that are successful. But tell me, what, how did that come to be? You're, you're the skip, but throwing third stones. It was a decision we made in five minutes. It was not. So when Alina called me and was asking if I want to play with her, and, um, you know, I said yes immediately. And then it was about who is playing which uh, position. And then I said, I'm going to play third for you. And she said, I'm going to play third for you. And then we said, okay, <laughs> let's, let's use Cape by place. Uh, I, and I play fourth rock. And then we had, it, the decision was made. You know, it was like so simple and, and it worked. You know, we didn't know if it's working, but it works, works for us. Even though there are some disadvantages, you know, skipping for someone else. I always have to feel if she if she can make the last rock. Sometimes, you know, when she's herself, she's gonna make everything, then it's very easy to skip for her. But if she's not at her best, then I, I really have to feel what, if I can um, let her play this rock or not. So that was not so easy at the beginning, but it's the more we know each other, the easier it gets. So does this uh, cause you to talk a lot about this during the game, maybe a little more than you'd have normal communication between the skip and the third that you're you're asking her, is this the way you want to go or what do you think we should do next more often probably? Yeah, also about the weight. You know, I would maybe play a hit with less weight or more weight than she is. But, um, you know, sometimes I just have to say nothing and just let her do and she's going to make the shot. So I had to learn that, you know, I had to learn to trust her and... Um, that took some time, but you're doing pretty good, I think. 
Interesting. Kevin, did you ever play on a team that was structured that way? Uh, no, I didn't actually, but I, it didn't surprise me when, uh, when you guys got together, Sylvana, you and Alina, that I always thought uh, strategically you're extremely sharp. I always thought that. And then I thought that before you and Alina played, Alina is such a good last shot maker. She just has like uh, ice going through her veins. Like she just doesn't feel the pressure. At least it doesn't look like she feels the pressure. So I wasn't surprised at all the way you uh, you set up your team. I want to talk of one thing, um, Savannah, because at the world, I want to talk first of all, uh, I also want to go into the eight ender you guys got. There's never been an eight ender at a world championship. I want to talk about that. But first, the last draw distance. You guys were the best draw distance at the Champions Cup. You guys were the best at the Players' Championship, and you guys were the best at the Worlds by a huge margin. And I know our team back when we used to play, um, we concentrated a great deal on making sure we won the draw to the button all the time. You guys, I, I believe you won 11 of your 13 round robin games. You, uh, you had the hammer. You guys were best. How much time do you put into the draw to the button? And this is kind of aimed at the young people that listen to our show. Because a lot of them, I don't think, put enough effort into the drawing the button. And without tiebreakers these days in a lot of different events, I, I think it's become very, very important. So how much emphasis, Sylvana, do you guys put on draw the button? Yeah, I agree. It's extremely important. And we do actually practice that. Um, and I also told the juniors, like, they, they should, like, because... It's making a difference. If you start with the hammer, it's making a huge difference. And we, we start every practice with drawing to the button. You know, you have two practice rocks and then the third one is going to count. And that's basically what you do in a pregame practice. You, you have two practice shots and then the third one counts. And um, so it's actually not only Alina or, or the back end that's um, good at it. It's also the front end who puts it on the button uh, very often. And that helps little in the game. Right, because I think at a world, correct me if I'm wrong, Sylvana, but I think all four of your players have to throw six draws at least to the button, I think, uh, during the whole week. Like every player has to throw six. Yes. And in practice, you mentioned... Three out turn. Yeah, yeah be it in turn or out turn or clockwise yeah. or counterclockwise. But when it comes to your practice, I want to get a little bit further into this because I think it's really important for the kids. You mentioned just now that at the start of the practice, is that because when you step on a sheet of ice to try to get hammer and your first practice, you're walking onto a new sheet of ice and it's always more difficult to draw the button on new ice. Is that why you do the draw of the button first in your practice? Yes, the ice gets quicker and quicker with every every shot. And it's very similar. Uh, if you really like the first three rocks, like it's very similar, like in a pregame practice. So the first rock, like you have uh, a certain time on your stopwatch and then the second is already a little quicker and then the third one actually, which counts, um, has to be on the button. So. Uh, try it. it. It's 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 gonna make you better in in winning hammers. I'm sure. Interesting. And I want last thing before Warren jumps back in here is uh, the eight ender. <laughs> you guys got an eight ender. I've never had one. I've I've never had an eight ender in my life of curling. Have you had a second one, or is that your first ever eight ender at the World Championships? It was the very first for all of us, so it's <laughs> it's uh, so it, it's very rare actually. Uh, I was thinking I'm gonna first score a hole in one, then I will an eight, score an eight ender. <laughs> <laughs> so the eight ender came first. Yeah, I think um, on this level actually, both teams um, 
can't play at their best. Uh, it was uh, certainly not our best best end ever, because you know, like the other team, always had a way out. Otherwise, they would have played differently. You know, we had a few um, a few rocks behind the T line, and they needed to steal, so they were trying to do that and they missed uh, the freezes a few times, and that's how I didn't even realize that we are um, going for eight. You know, I was thinking it's just seven. I never, I never thought you're going to score a big end. I was always concerned about them stealing. And then Alina said, okay, you're going to score eight. And that was eight. <laughs> really, <laughs> I, I was quite nervous when she was showing her last rock. I want, really want her to make it. And the last one, I think was a draw, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah, a draw into the 12 foot, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Warren, go ahead. So you know your team is going to represent Switzerland at the Olympics. What is your training schedule and what are you going to be doing between now and next February to prepare for that? We haven't had a meeting about that yet, but uh, well, we have practice ice basically through all the whole year. We already have ice now, but we are going to have a, a little break before we start to go back on the ice, that's for sure. But then we still have a lot of things you can improve on, you know, like I would like to work on my technique. Kevin always says my intern is so round, so I'm gonna go and make sure um, my intern is gonna be better next year. So, you know, a lot of the events over the bubble have been different formats. Uh, some have been pool systems, page playoff over the years. Uh, this was a giant round robin. You know, I may be answering the old question because you did end up winning, but. What do you think of that format and what is your favorite format or, and, and would you like to see something different in the worlds or something sort of stay consistent? Yeah, I think it's, it's too many games, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, the Curling World Championship um, should be like who is the fittest team. I think it should be about who is the best curling team. And so either I think we have to reduce it to eight ends or we have to reduce the teams. So um, I don't think it's... Uh, yeah, it helps our sport if we have like uh, fifteen games in in ten days. That's or even in in eight days. That's I think that's too much. How many teams do you think should be in it? Well, if it's uh, twelve or or ten, I don't know. But um, and I don't also don't know. Uh, you know, if you have a B or or an A and B group or or whatever, or how you're going to do it, or do it similar like at the Scotties. But um, I just think you. Even reduce it to eight ends would help, but um, it's too much time on the ice, I think. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Kevin and I both played in a world championship in Bern, in an arena that had glass in both ends of it, and we've talked in this show many times about how the sun shone in the daytime. Is that arena still there? <laughs> no, also different arena. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too bad, because you, you should hear the stories that Warren and Kevin told when we weren't doing the podcast that we weren't allowed to say about what what happened in there. Sylvana again, thanks very much. Congratulations. You must be you must be so proud of yourself and and your country must be so proud of you and 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 you with all the other crows on your team. Way to go and we'll be be watching for you down the road and certainly at the Olympics. So take care of yourself, Sylvana, and thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sylvana. Thank you, Sylvana. Thank you.
Kevin, you said she can't speak English very well. She was fantastic. She speaks English better than all of us. <laughs> Wasn't she great? Jimmy, I, I didn't say that. Actually, I was talking to Pierre Charette and uh, the coach of the team, and, and he said, Sylvana was kind of worried about uh, coming on the show because of her English. And, but I always thought she had really good English, and she does. Fantastic. So, yeah, oh, Sylvana, such a good curler, and she's been, um, she was knocking at the door for a lot of years um, and would win now and again. But since her and Alina got together, all they do is win. What a fantastic combination. And, and just to hear, I think, the, uh, how things are done on their team's training, I really enjoyed hearing that, how professional and how they train and how, how they use their, their time to the best of their uh, ability. Let's talk about the, uh, the last event. The, the last big one is the World Mixed Doubles. It'll start on May 17th in Scotland. Uh, Canada, of course, is represented by Brad and uh, Gushu and Kerry Anderson. Uh, there's going to be 20 nations that are involved. Um, what more can you tell us about that, Warren? Well, the World Curling Federation has taken a little different approach with this event this year. Uh, in the last few years, there's been 38 to 40 teams in the World Mixed Doubles. And this year, there's 20, and they've uh, cut it back. And there's two sections of 10. And apparently, there's going to be a relegation uh, going into the future where the teams off the bottom, I think the couple off of each section are going to drop down, and there's going to be a challenge round for those two positions next year. So I think that's a really good thing. That's maybe the way things should be leaning with the men's and women's worlds, but a good start here. So two sections of 10. Here are the teams that are in the section with Canada. Czech Republic, Estonia, Germany, Italy, Korea, Norway, Scotland, Sweden, and United States. And let me tell you some of the players that are in there, that this is a fairly tough section. So United States, we've got Tabitha Peterson, who just won the bronze medal in the women's worlds, and Joe Polo, who was the alternate player with Schuster when they won the Olympic gold. Sweden, Oscar Eriksson is the male player in that team, and for Scotland is Bruce Mowat. So Canada's got uh, three teams there for sure that we know of that are going to be tough contenders. The way this whole thing is going to work is much the same as the men's and women's worlds. The top team out of each section will get a bye to the semifinals, and then the next two out of each section will move out, so there's six teams qualify, and they'll play off in the same manner that they did at the uh, World Men's and World Women's. There's also Olympic qualification out of this event this year. In the Olympics, the total teams in mixed doubles is going to go from 8 to 10. Seven of those teams are going to be determined of the World Mixed Doubles event this year, and there's going to be a qualifying event next year for uh, the other three positions. So I think this whole thing has come up a notch in the last year, which I think is fantastic. There's going to be television coverage produced by World Curling Television. The details of that schedule are going to be put out over the next few days. Uh, TSN in Canada is going to pick up some of the games, not a lot, primarily Canadian games and the playoffs. But uh, there's going to be some Canadian television coverage, but also YouTube from World Curling Television is going to be providing games from the start of the whole thing on the 17th to its conclusion on the 23rd. So I think we're all real looking forward to it. What do you think of it all, Kevin? First of all, Kev, are you doing any games for, for the World Curling Federation? No, uh, it's just too tough to travel over to Scotland right. to do them. So no, um, it'll be a local crew out of Scotland. I don't know exactly who. Rona Martin probably will be involved. She does a lot of the television for World Curling Television. But no, I'm not uh, involved. Uh, and a lot of times I'll actually cover the mixed doubles worlds for NBC. But once again, same thing. Travel across the borders is difficult. So not this year, but... 
as everybody knows, I, I love mixed doubles and I'm really looking forward to watching it and uh, TSN covering a few of the games here in Canada, but World Curling Television, YouTube, it's so easy for everybody. Just go ahead and uh, it's easy to find. And of course, with the time change, you'll be having to get up a little early in the morning to, <laughs> to watch some of it. But yeah, you know what? And uh, a lot of the top curlers in the world are in this world championship and Olympic qualifying on the line. So uh, it'll be really fun to watch. And Canada has a terrific representation with, with of course, Kerry Anderson and, and Brad Gushu. Well, listen, uh, thanks, everybody. Well, that's enough out of you, Kev. Okay, and Warren? Okay, we're, we're, we're stuffed with you guys. Uh, great job today. Thanks a lot to our guest, of course, uh, Silvana Terranzoni. Uh, Inside Curling is reaching out uh, to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a Zoom call about an hour long with me, Kevin, and Warren. Uh, you can discuss anything you'd like. Uh, we've had several of these that we've done now, and uh, people love them, and we want to keep doing them. However, it's on a limited basis, and uh, we want to keep it to the clubs, okay? We're not going to do it with individual people. Uh, it, it just, we'd never be able to pull, pull it off. Uh, Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies, thanks a lot for all the great work on social media and marketing along with our team at Sportsnet. We really appreciate that. Warren, you're a producer of this show, and we want to thank uh, Amal Delic. Uh, it's mixed uh, and sound is designed by Amal, as well as Jonathan Brazo, who does our social media. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Warren. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.